This week on the Fit for Purpose podcast, I talked to Lord Bird. In 1991, he set up The Big Issue, which has helped homeless people ever since. He's also worked with me on the Social Mobility Pledge. We talk about coronavirus, how it's affecting homelessness and how it can maybe give us the chance to have a different approach in the future, but also the wider issues of social mobility and social justice. And of course, I asked John what advice he would give to his younger self. Lord Bird, thank you very much, John, for for coming on the Fit for Purpose podcast. We've all been facing lockdown over the last few weeks. How's yours been? What what have you missed the most? Um, Well, what I've missed is um, walking around cities, going to cathedrals, uh, churches and museums. Because um, as I had my little busy life um, working in the Lords and then going to various parts of the country to look at projects and meet people, I always went to museums. So when I went, for instance, to Wakefield, I went to the new uh, Hepworth or when I went to Durham, I had a meeting in Durham, I'd go to the I'd go to the cathedral um, so that was my thing, walking and looking at ecclesiastical architecture, museums. I'm sorry to sound so posh, but that's what I've been doing most of my life. <laughs> but you see, I never knew that you were so interested in that, actually. Um, what it, has it always been a passion of yours to, to sort of look almost back into history and, and the buildings that house it as well? Well, yeah, I mean... <clears throat> Well, what happened to me was uh, when I I, I was, it's very strange, but I was born within uh, a few minutes of incredibly fine and beautiful pieces of architecture in the slums of London. And what people don't realise, because they always think the slums are, you know, a kind of industrial and all that, is that London was a place of incredible uh, architecture and social planning but there would always be a, a place uh, very very near a, um, a a kind of well-made place so for instance around uh, 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 around parliament itself up until quite recently there were pockets of uh, incredible slums you know where there were outdoor toilets and all that so the rich and the healthy and the wealthy often live very side by side with the rundown. So from a from childhood, I was, you know, I was born within a mile of where Queen Victoria was born. But it was a terrible slum and it had the highest infant mortality rate than anywhere else in Britain. But it was minutes from, uh, you know, imperial splendor. So, so from a very early age, I took an interest in architecture. I took an interest in old buildings. I'm a devout ex-Catholic uh, and I've always <laughs> taken an interest in cathedrals. So when I lived up in Sheffield, I spent a lot of time going around to uh, lots of local churches and I spent a lot of time at Sheffield Cathedral. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily participating in the religious things, but just going there and mm-hmm. meeting people and, and all that. So, uh, so And then when I was... Um, 15 I was in a boys prison and, wh- and while I was there I, I learned to read and write in a, in a place 
and when I came out, I started reading a lot, uh, and then I took an interest in art. So I became my social mobility was through prisons. And talking about social mobility, that's the real problem about prisons now is you go in bad and you come out worse because mm-hmm. they put put you in, they warehouse you, or they do something else which is just as bad, which is they 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 totally ignore you and. Uh, there is no um, mobility coming out of prisons, or there's very little of it. And that's one of my big arguments in the Lords, that we spend all of this money on what we call is justice, but we forget social justice. And to me, social justice is taking a wrongdoer, in my case, and making them more useful. So it's from poverty to, to purpose, so to speak. And I think, I mean, obviously, we both campaigned on social justice, uh, you know, more broadly, in a sense, um, you know, you've you've done amazing work with the big issue. From my perspective, I set up the social mobility pledge because I think getting on in life is about opportunities. And I think businesses are the organisations that provide most of them. But I think it's crucial what you just said, because effectively people can take different paths in life. And often the path they take is is simply down to circumstance or bad luck. And yet it ends up shaping an entire future. And and that's not not just bad for the person themselves in terms of what happens to them. It is bad for wider society. You know, you're almost a perfect example of this different paths point someone who spends some time in jail but ultimately has a huge amount they can contribute if only they can just somehow get onto a path that opens the way for them to do that i mean i was interested about how the covid crisis has affected the big issue and obviously at the heart of it is campaigning around homelessness how has it actually worked for, for your organisation once the lockdown happened and all those people that it helps day to day? Well, it was it was apparently disastrous. Uh, when I say apparently, because uh, there are other things that have come about that I think uh, um, need to be addressed, um, positive and negative. Um, the... The bad thing about the the situation was that we could we had to stop people using the greatest mechanism for social mobility themselves, which is earning a living. Um, and we had to we had to get them put into hostels or put into places, put into family, um, and then we carried on supporting them and have raised money and spent money that we've had uh, on keeping them safe and provide with with their needs but so we've had to go from what we call as a hand up which is the socially mobile thing do something that brings you out the other end higher than when you went in um and we've had to kind of park that up and just give people handouts um we've had to just make sure they're all right so that to me has been the biggest tragedy because i've always said you know, I've had nearly 30 years with the big issue and I would never, ever give anybody a handout. I would always give them something that was sticky, that put them in a slightly different place than somewhere else. 
So the big issue was always a means by which somebody started to earn their own money, started to decriminalize themselves if they were getting into trouble, started to look at the reasons why they may be on drink or drugs, or they may be continually begging or something, and begin a process in their lives, which is the journey that we all should be given the chance to go on. Unfortunately, as we discussed on many occasions, many people are stopped by going on that journey. So we've had to interrupt the journey for nearly 2,000 people around the United Kingdom. But at the same time, it's given us a chance of really thinking again, you know, what were we doing? Were we doing things deep enough? Were we doing things in a constructive way? Were we were we working with more prevention? Because the big thing is we were watching people fall into homelessness and there was very little that we could do about it. So that's the kind of thoughtfulness that's grown out of it. And we have now reorientated the, the big issue greater towards outcome um, and kind of look, looked at what we can do in the future to prevent homelessness. So uh, interestingly, um, what we've got now is we, we were very helpful and supportive of the government helping circa three, 5,000 people off the streets. Into... I was going to ask you about that, John, because yeah. I think one of the issues of lockdown was just the speed at which everyone had to suddenly confront a whole range of issues, whether you're a business, a family, um, in the health service, but obviously also for homelessness. And it was striking how within a matter of days, effectively, solutions, even if they were temporary and short term, were found for people for whom years had been spent trying to get lives changed. And it feels to me like this is a moment when we've got some decisions to take about whether we just allow it to go back to how it was before, which I don't think anybody felt was acceptable or whether we almost use this as a moment to try and get better outcomes for some of those people who we used to you know see as we left the tube station and and desperately want to see get help well that that is the interesting part what, what what's really um the the exciting thing about what you're saying is is that we've had this situation for decades and we've we've done well not an awful lot um, and now we very quickly removed virtually all of the country's rough sleepers um, probably about 90 percent 85 to 90 percent have been removed which is about 5,000 um, what uh, what to me is exciting is is the speed with which government can work when it uses the facilities of the homeless organizations because the government didn't actually lift them themselves what the government did was commission lifters people mm -hmm. like St Mungo's Crisis Centrepoint all these people um, and so therefore they they very quickly said right we've been giving you money for years to help people survive on the streets now we're giving you money to lift them off the streets and then we're going to pay for the pay for the travel lodge bills and we're going to support local authorities who have been the biggest uh, source of support 
support the local authorities to get everybody moving. No, you know, no second night yeah. out and all that stuff. But but uh, the real problem for me is, as you address, what do we do afterwards? And we have managed to get agreement. I've got agreement from Dame Louise Casey. I've got agreement from the Minister of Housing, Luke Hall. Uh, and I've got it, you know, uh, in a one-to-one conversation. And I've got it from Lord Greenworthy uh, in the Lords uh, in a debate that I've had that they will not allow people to return to the streets. So we got those agreements, and and hopefully we don't decamp them back on the streets. My problem, and this is where I think social mobility is the important uh, ingredient, is my problem is that a lot of people's prosperity is about to be destroyed if you look at what the local government association, the LGA's report Mm -hmm. of two weeks ago, which says that there are circa half a million people who will not be able to pay their mortgages and not be able to pay their rent, who are evictable. And if we don't do something about it, then we're going to have all these people now. It frightens the life out of me. So there's always there are two. Basically, you're saying there are two groups that we really need to be concerned with. One is the existing group of people who were already rough sleeping and homeless before, who we found a temporary um, assistance for. But the question is, what next? And then you're saying because of the downturn and, and what's happened, the danger is we have a massive influx of new people that add on to those numbers that were already there. What we've got is we've got ordinary people who've lived comfortable lives. We've got people who have put all their efforts, all their eggs in the property basket or all their their effort into bringing out their children. They are now passing into a, a place that we need to support them so that they don't enter the mechanism, the system of homeless decline. So one of the reasons the the LGA is getting upset is because they will be left to take those children and families and put them in B&B and find other transitional and temporary forms of accommodation before they put them on a a social housing list. So we have to reach out to those half a million and that is exactly what the big issue is now orientating itself for. So we are becoming um, uh, players, bigger players than we were before in homeless prevention. Mm. So work, working to stop the problem before it even starts. And in a yeah. sense, the work that you're doing in the House of Lords now, and I have to say, um, it would be it, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the, the well-being of future generations bill, because that is all about, in a sense, getting upstream and thinking about how to stop problems before they even happen. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about why you've ended up being so involved in this? And and obviously, it's part of uh, the legislation in Wales. Clearly, I think we can learn a lot from how that bill has progressed there, I presume. Yeah, well, uh, I um, um, when I entered the House of Lords, um, I entered with a proviso. I was not going in uh, for any other reason 
than I was there to, as I graphically described, and forgive me, to one newspaper. I went there to cut the throat of poverty. So I was being very theatrical. But what I was really saying was I was not there to help people through the day, the week, the month or the year by upping their benefits or giving them a little bit of this or a bit of that. I wasn't there to do any more than find the mechanism for dismantling the problems that produce uh, social immobility, because that's what we're dealing with. So I was very, very concerned that I would that I needed to find a way of of identifying problems and and moving forward. And do you feel like the Lords and Parliament more broadly is really seized enough of this sort of an issue? I was always struck on social mobility in the House of Commons, how few MPs were really engaged with it day to day. So they might be looking at a particular symptom of the problem. But I remember having a debate in Westminster Hall on how Treasury needed to reform if you were going to have social mobility, and literally about four MPs were there. I remember the opposition had a debate, I think, on social mobility probably at back end of last year. And I think there were three MPs on the government side. It does seem to me that there's almost this issue of a lack of urgency, actually, on all of this. And and people have almost got used to a slow pace of change when actually they shouldn't be used to a slow pace of change, pace of change and they should demand much faster progress, I think. Well, I, I tell you what I find so difficult, and forgive me if this sounds a bit rude, is the greatest enemies of social mobility are people who themselves are socially mobile. So when I I talk to some MPs or some even members of the government, well, not so much now, but I'll talk to them about social mobility and they will say, well, you know, support is much more important. I was on on a debate the other day when I was saying that we have to increase social mobility very much based on looking at what was happening in Wales where the Future Generations Bill was asking many, many questions about the quality of education, the quality of social delivery to people in need. And and I was saying, you know, we've got to up uh, social mobility. And a number of people who are in the House of Lords were on this uh, debate and they unified around the very idea, well, social mobility is, you know, it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I didn't say, but I felt like saying, look, you are socially mobile. You may be one generation, two generations, three generations, but most people in Britain, 90% of people in the British middle classes uh, have come from a socially mobile background. And therefore, what we've got to see is that social mobility is the very bedrock, the backbone of our modern democracy. I agree. And and from my perspective, I've always felt social mobility is a right. People should have the right to be able to make their own way in life unhindered by circumstances or their background. And in a sense, maybe it's telling that we're still even having to debate what I think is a very fundamental but obvious point that where you start in this country should have no bearing on how far you can get. And 
I think what's fascinating to me is that there is this sense at times, I think, of almost as if it's a zero-sum game. Somehow, if we allow some new people to get opportunities and do better, then other people have to do worse. And I think that's a false dichotomy. I think more people doing better is how more people do better. I, I think it lifts everyone at the end of the day. And there's a fundamental issue of how sustainable any society can be when gaps get so big. And I think that's where perhaps we had got to and have got to in Britain. And if one thing happens out of the lockdown, for me, it's that it's it's not more a pause for thought, if you like, at the moment. It does feel like there's a genuine moment to take some decisions about what kind of Britain we want to open up again. Because if we weren't happy with the original one, and I certainly wasn't, then now is the time to refashion it. Well, that's that's um, that is um, one of the big things that comes out of COVID nineteen and and the lockdown. But but I remember going to see a, a minister a few years ago, and I went to them and I said to them, "Look, you know, you're failing." 30% of our children at school and you are letting down people who when I go into the prison system or within the prison system myself whenever I talk to people how they did at school they always said they did very badly when I go and talk to the working poor I say how do you do at school I did very badly when I go to the A&E department and I talk to the doctors there I say what is the commonality of people here and they say well one of the real problems is the NHS is clogged up with people who have not particularly done very well at school and they're using the NHS as a kind of drop-in because no one has given them the chance to move on and address some of the issues around, uh, around social mobility and social opportunity. Anyway, the minister said to me, I got my figures wrong. It's not 30%, it's 37%. And of course, you know who that person is because it was you. <laughs> and you reminded me and we sat and we sat and we sat for half an hour, which turned into an hour. And we talked about how do we remove the stumbling blocks to social mobility? And we violated that it was utterly unacceptable to have young people left behind before they'd even got into an adult life. And I think that was one of those discussions, John, that in a way, helped me realise that there were a lot of other people around in Parliament who felt exactly as passionate as I did about social mobility and social justice. Well, that was that that, that was a, an apocryphal meeting for me, by the way. I didn't have I didn't meet your your the person who came on. Well, I met Vicky Morgan in some other capacity. But the but what was interesting about talking to you now, now I, I'm not trying to be personal. I know where you come from. You come from Rotherham. Um, you had a you had a mother who helped you and drove you to be strong and in and uh, and take on your education. I didn't have a mother like that. I had a mother who wanted me to get out to work as soon as effing possible. You can imagine what the F is. Uh, and so I had to get I had to get my mothering from the state. I had to get mm -hmm. my mothering from the prison service. And what is interesting to me is that we all have to sit back and, and, and realize 
that if we don't get it from mum and dad, and it, it, that is the best way of getting it, we've got to get it somewhere. And mm. we have to have education. We've got to have education that reorientates the child who has been who's been let down by the opportunities that don't come don't always come out of family life and reorientate them and put them on the, on the known path, on a better path. And back to my argument earlier, I think it's, it is terrible that our prison system does not produce a, a redeemed, rehabilitated human beings, but produce often produces people who have been warehoused for so long. I, well, I, I, I thoroughly agree. And I think if you were putting achieving social mobility and levelling up at the heart of a government, then it would naturally tend you to look and direct your efforts at the people furthest away from a level playing field on opportunity. And that, of course, would include people in the justice system. And I think recognising that it's not just their own lives in a sense that get lost because they're not able to fulfil their potential. It's just a cost to a much wider society of, first of all, just the sheer expense, obviously, of people being in the justice system. But I think perhaps more importantly, the opportunity cost of the fact we never realise what they could go on to do. And the bill you've got now passing through the Lords, tell us how far it's got, because it's really saying, isn't it, John, that when a government pulls together legislation, it has to look more carefully about how it will impact long term for future generations. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we we stole the idea from from Wales, where for the last five years they've had a, um, a, a, a few, you know, they passed the the well-being of future generations act five years ago and they have a commissioner and the commissioner has influence over um, how the government spends its money what kind of support they give and it has to be on the basis that nothing is done in a in a short-term ham-fisted uh, way but is to do with planning the future so that we don't run into the laws of unintended consequences that m- so much law Often we're sitting in Parliament and we're unravelling mistakes that were made previously. Um, And so therefore the Future Generations Bill uh, is a bill that's passed through its its two two stages. It's had its second reading. It's now going uh, into committee. Uh, That's in the House of Lords. Already in the House of Commons, um, uh, Caroline Lucas, who's sponsored it there has 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 brought it into the commons i'm not too sure about the rigmarole of legal rigmarole because um even though this is my second attempt at bringing a a bill into parliament that becomes an act as we both know because i was involved in the first attempt probably you're talking about that credit worthiness assessment bill which we never quite got over the line unfortunately yeah they were there were too many i think there were too many people who could see that whereas it would help 80 percent of people um there would be nine ten percent who who would kind of it wouldn't particularly help them and there would probably be ten percent who felt would feel that it held it, it kind of chastised them 
because they had a bad credit record. I've never agreed with that argument. And to this day, I would love to have seen that bill uh, enter the secretary books. But what we're doing, we are proceeding. We're building we're building a kind of alliance of people in and around Parliament and in charities and and, uh, local authorities to help us. And people as wide spread as the World Wildlife Fund all the way through to uh, to, you know, different local authorities. So what we're doing is building an alliance that is beyond um, Parliament because it will be difficult to get this through. But if we get it right that there is enough groundswell in the community and in society in general, then the government um, will be more obliged than ever to give it the time that it needs. But it waits um, it waits now, obviously, in a in a kind of uh, um, in an interregnum, as they say, because of COVID-19. And the fact, even though we've got this virtual parliament, I've been through it and it's quite difficult to achieve anything. Mm. Um, I've, I've, I've had one debate and I've entered two or three other debates, but it is like pulling teeth. I think before it was like pulling teeth, but the teeth are getting harder to pull. <laughs> now, I've, I've got a couple of final um, areas I wanted to ask you about. And obviously, I think before many people, you saw the role that business and, and enterprise can play in helping people get their lives on track and, and making the most of themselves. Where do you see business fitting in now in terms of the opportunity gap that's arisen because of COVID? It's taken all those social mobility differences and, and, and made them wider. Where do you see business fit into all of this, do you think? Well, I think there's a number of things that have transformed business in, in my lifetime. Um, one of the things that has really transformed business is the desire by customers for things like fair trade, not testing on animals, um, no sweatshops. And that has been largely driven, you know, the people who produce products, a better relationship between the community and businesses. And I think that's really, really changed. Um, And that's one of the most encouraging things in the way in which consumers can change people. I think what's happened with the COVID-19 um, crisis is that businesses have woken up even more to not just the their social responsibility, but the fact that they can be incredibly useful in the community. Um, so I am looking forward to um, a more grown up uh, response by people towards business. I have also to tell you that when I started the big issue. Uh, 29 years ago, uh, this this autumn, when I started the big issue, I didn't call myself a anything other than a business response to a social crisis. And the reason for that is because my work grew out of a business. The body shop made the money that gave me the chance to start my social business, to make my mistakes and make my successes. And they gave me enough time and enough money to do that. So I've grown out of the so I've grown out of a business 
I've grown into a business responsible social class. So I've been fascinated by the amount of social change that I've seen when businesses wake up to the idea of the potentiality, the possibility of their community, the possibility of their immediate society to bring about social change in the lives of many, many people. I, I mean, I think it's really exciting because... A lot of the work we've done through the Social Mobility Pledge has already underlined in a way just how much companies can do when they decide that they want to play this broader role. But also it's underlined to me that the companies that do it the best aren't making a choice between whether they're successful or they help communities be successful. They'll actually be successful because they've played this bigger role. And because that's actually fundamentally part of how they themselves can be sustainable. And I think a lot of companies are increasingly realising that, in a sense, they may pay tax as a result of being successful. And, and in the past, perhaps they saw that as their contribution back to society. I think smart companies and the ones that are almost where the debate's going are the ones that understand this issue of social value and where they fit in is much wider than just how much tax did you pay that matters but actually they can bring all the creativity they've got to be successful businesses onto some of these broader challenges that communities face and in a sense I think what people want to see are businesses taking a community set of priorities and then making them theirs as well and asking themselves as many have done actually during the COVID crisis so what can we do as an organisation to help other than the work that we're already doing, protecting jobs and, and keeping our own business going. And I think it's a really interesting debate that we're going to have in the coming months, hopefully, because it does feel like that has opened up and some companies have had a bit of an epiphany almost as they've they've understood that there is this wider role. But more than that, the public like and want to see them play it. So I think the reticence that some might have had in putting their heads above the parapet is increasingly going is actually when they do that and, and give it a go, people say, thanks, that was really good to see you trying to help. I've got one final question for you, John, um, which I'll be fascinated to see what your your answer is. So you've had an incredibly varied life. I mean, more so than really many of the other people I'll, I'll ever get a chance to do a podcast with. But if you were looking back now to your younger self and giving a young John Bird some advice, what would it be? Well, I did write one of these letters to my younger self uh, for a book over Christmas. And I said, uh, don't get caught. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I don't think I would give that advice now because I, by being caught, I, 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 was, I was given the opportunity to make up for the poor family life I had, the violent, um, troubled, domestic abuse life. Um, the advice I would give John, John Bird is, is a very, very simple piece of advice. Um, and that is um, um, cross-question yourself, interrogate yourself, find out what you're, what you're guessing, what are you doing and where are you going? Uh, one of the things I did, I spent so many years just floating um, and going from one crisis to another, never realising that stealing that car might lead to imprisonment and all that. 
But if I had actually stopped and thought about it, I might have then said, oh, well, what about learning to read and write? What about learning some skills? I mean, I was incredibly skillful in certain areas. One of the areas I was incredibly skillful was my ability to talk to adults from a very early age and, and to become a kind of what my mother called a bletherer. She was an Irish woman. Uh, so I, I had social literacy. I knew how to talk to people. I knew how to talk to the parish priest. I knew how to talk to the teachers and all that. And, and I would have wanted to cash in. I would have wanted to make more of the skills that were inherent in, within me. So I would have interrogated young John Bird to say, well, what are you good at? Tell us what. And I would have tried to make myself feel that actually I was a worthy human being. And that if I put my mind to more constructive things, I could be very useful to people. And I've become incredibly useful by becoming incredibly conscious of how you can turn somebody from uh, doing wrong into doing something much more useful. Well, John, that's been absolutely fantastic to to get you on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to just catch up almost on what we've been both doing during lockdown, um, but also plans for the future. And I know that we'll keep on working together as we have been on the work that you're doing through the big issue, but also the social mobility pledge work as well. So thank you for your support on all of that. And um, I'm looking forward to our joint campaign continuing over the the coming months. I think it's probably never been more important. I I agree with you 100%. Thank you, Justine. For inviting me, I'm this where where you're positioned is where I think we all need to be, which is getting rid rid of the old uh, stumbling blocks to social mobility, social opportunity. Everybody deserves, as you say, the right to to not be held back by where they come from, but but be encouraged to where they want to go. And I think that is absolutely uh, key. It's a human right that we need to nurture and encourage. And I'm so glad that you are continuing our work, even in these difficult times. Thank you very much indeed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then subscribe to the series or share it with a friend. See you next time.